All right. Welcome to Cinema Around the Corner. My name is Ben Wager, and I'm with my co-host, Don Gibson. And today we're going to look at some films from 1979. Is that correct, Don? 79 is the year, yep. Uh, so these, these were nominated films for Best Picture in 1980, in the year 19, but they were the 1979 nominations, correct? That is correct. Yes. So uh, our films that we picked for uh, this viewing are The China Syndrome was Don's pick, and my pick was Manhattan, a Woody Allen film. So we're going to open up by Don telling us a little bit about The China Syndrome. Yeah. Uh, so China Syndrome was a really big movie at the time. So it's the story of a nuclear meltdown in a, in a nuclear power plant. And this was a really topical thing at the time because nuclear power had just really arrived in North America around this time. And everyone was saying it's, it's the solution to all sorts of energy problems. But then people started looking into all the environmentalists, looking at the reality of what it was. So it was a very hot topic at the time. Uh, so it's, start, it's directed by a guy named James Bridges. And he's, he made other films that were fairly well-known, but he's not an incredibly well-known person. He made The Urban Cowboy, and perfect two John Travolta films that uh, have faded in the past. And he also made Bright Lights, Big City with uh, Michael J. Fox. Thank you. And so they're, you know, pretty good Hollywood films. Um, he died He died a little bit young. Um, uh, James Bridges, he died when he was 57, so maybe he would have made other films. But his, his style is pretty mainstream, pretty straightforward. Uh, I wouldn't say he's really focused on style. But was, the, he, uh, was he related to the Bridges family, the actors? No. And... Um, the, 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 I think the most interesting person in terms of the production is Michael Douglas. So Michael Douglas, who I guess lots of us know, sorry, what? Wall Street. Yeah, he was in Wall Street. He was Gecko in Wall Street. And then he was in Fatal Attraction and, you know, a lot of Romance in the Stone, War of the Roses. He actually starred in a lot of films. He was, you know, and his a very famous father, Kirk Douglas. But originally, he actually got into the industry um, in production. So his, one of the, he did made a couple of films in the 70s, but... He produced uh, one, who, one Who Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and his father actually bought it for him, Kirk, Kirk Douglas. And the movie was one of the, that's one of the most successful films ever in terms of uh, uh, awards. I think it swept, it got director, actors, and, and best picture and everything. And then uh, Michael Douglas starred in a couple of smaller films, one called Running About a Marathon Man. And then he got this piece and he really got behind it. And this film was a highly successful film. And he also stars in it. He gives himself, so there's three main stars. We have him and we have Jane Fonda, who was probably the big name and also Jack Lemmon. Jack Lemmon had been around for about 30, 40 years. He was in The Apartment and many films and he was a film, uh, an actor that many people recognized. And so they had a pretty star-studded cast and both Lemmon and, and, and Fonda were nominated for Oscars for, the, for their performances. Michael Douglas's character is, is not as, I mean, it's, it's, he was the, he's the cameraman. So we have Jane Fonda is the reporter who is always doing kind of soft news, you know, and she's a beautiful woman and they're always having her do, you know, the soft news, kind of like if people know Anchorman, it's very much like uh, what they were doing with the female character that showed up there. Always do soft news, don't do really hard reporting. And of course, John, Jane Fonda wants the really big story. That's and, funny you said that, because that's exactly what I thought when I was watching this was, oh, the Anchorman parodied it this par a little bit. It know? totally parodies it, yeah. Of course, they're the anchors. It's not out being in the field, but it's a similar idea. So anyways, the story, and so originally she goes into the, the power plant and they're just doing soft news about how great nuclear power is. And then while they're there, there's an event 
And so Michael Douglas leaves his camera on. He and so they're in the viewing booth of the control room of the power plant. And and then he they can see that people are pretty panicked. They're worried about a meltdown, the core melting, and all the radioactive water waste getting out into the groundwater and all these things. And and so the film it definitely switches at the time. It's kind of a light film at the time, lots of chatter. And then we start realizing this is a really important thing. And Jack Lemmon is the guy that works the power plant. And then the three of them work together to expose, you know, the dangers of radiation and nuclear power. Interesting enough, uh, you mentioned that Michael Douglas uh, took the role as a cameraman, but originally Richard Dreyfuss was supposed to have that role. And then he pulled out at the last minute because Michael Douglas was had no intention of acting in this movie. But then, you know, he was... Uh, selected basically um, as, as the last minute replacement for Richard Dreyfuss. And I thought he, he did a very good job. Yeah, he did. And it's interesting because Michael Douglas really, he never really went into the industry as an actor. And I think a lot of people would think, you know, how, what did Michael Douglas do? And the reality is he really entered the industry because he had a very powerful and, and famous father. He entered it as, as a producer and, and he produced very successful films, but then you know, he was very successful as an actor later on. So I think you're right. He kind of went into went into the stuff kind of against his will, but then he realized, actually, I'm pretty good at this and I'm, I'm a draw. The, the main th reason this film, so this film had about a $6 million budget and it's very topical. And people say it's an intelligent, you know, investigative kind of journalism story, kind of similar to, uh, you know, All the President's Man, which we did a couple of episodes ago. This is this is a little bit lighter. All the President's Man is, you know, it's pretty intense and, and, and involved in the plot. But the fascinating thing about this film is it was released. And 12 days later, the incident at Three Mile Island happened in Pennsylvania which was a major, you know, um, nuclear meltdown incident. And, you know, it was huge news at the time. And people were, you know, because this was a new energy. Some people were saying it's amazing. Other people saying we don't know the dangers. And so this, this film was released literally two weeks before this huge incident. The producers, the, the distributors claim they actually pulled it from theaters. They didn't want to, like, take advantage of the situation. But the truth is, I mean, I remember when I was a young person, I just, I thought they, you know, you know, not really paying attention. I thought they made the film because of Three Mile Island and it was actually the other way around. And so they did phenomenally well, it made like $56 million and it became a very topical film uh, because it was such a relevant and important issue at the time. Yeah, I think the actual accident that was based off of had been like three or four years earlier in Alabama, there had been a, a, a very serious, um, reactor incident where the, the core cracked or something and and that the storyline was based i think off of that incident in uh, in alabama at a at a plant there and yeah so, and, and nothing really happened um whereas three mile island i, I you know i sort of doing this i read about three mile island they left that place that no one went back in for two three years and they went in you know obviously with radioactive suits etc and they have they didn't declare it a, a safe area until literally like four or five years ago um, so it was it was a serious incident that they had to cl close, you know, the, the plant, of course, and all the area. And it took, you know, 40 plus years to clean the thing up. So, yeah, it was a so this film is, is very topical. And, and you know, I, I, once again, similar to all, all the president's men, people are watching it because it related so much to something that was going on in the news. The other things I think is important about the film, how it uses surveillance. So in terms of style, it uses surveillance uh, images really well. So we 
basically a lot, there's a lot of stuff going on outside. You know, there's a story of, of you know, Jane Fonda and, and Michael Douglas trying to tell the story. The network doesn't want it. It's, you know, and we could see sort of bleeding into the ideas of network of what sells. Yeah. What's yeah. That, that reminded me that some of the, the plot lines that had to do with the network totally complemented that movie as well, you know? Yeah. It fits in very well. And you can see where that sort of sensibility comes from, but really the best footage, the most interesting stuff is in the power plant. And either in the control room where we're watching, you know, various levers and needles and we're worried something's going to happen. Um, and the, the reactors the itself. So the most interesting and the most tense material in this, in this film is this editing they do between the control room, which is dead silent. And, you know, it's just basically a, you know, hermetically sealed place. And all they're doing is looking at levers and, and, and needles. Pushing buttons pushing buttons and there's nothing and we're, we're looking at things going up and down but and it's dead silent and then it cuts back and forth bet between that and the reactor where there's incredibly loud you know generators are happening and then there's this moment where this one of the reactors or part of the part of the machinery is vibrating and it gets louder and louder and louder we can hear it whirring and and vibrating and then we can see the the things in the wall holding it and we can see them shaking but the sound contrast between the silence and this is very jarring. And when you watch it, you know, with fairly loud volume, like in a theater, it's actually quite disturbing and quite um, upsetting. And you're, you're, you are terrified or whatever, worried that the thing's going to fall over, it's going to explode and lots of people are going to die. Yeah, you know, I, I kind of felt the same. I felt the same way. The effect that the movie had was almost like a, a horror movie in, in the way that they had the foreboding and the, and the dread and the, and the way they shot the... Um, the, the reactor is kind of like a monster that's, a, you know, coming out of its cage or whatever. And it, it just had that kind of, that kind of vibe. And, you know, even the way they started the movie with the, um, the helicopter uh, watching them drive to the, uh, to the nuclear power plant and, and the power lines that were so close to the helicopter and the shots and stuff, it kind of gave you that foreboding five you're like wow is the helicopter gonna it's really close to the power lines you know that that was my first thing was like wow should they be that close to the power lines you know it just there, there, there was a lot of dread kind of built building up you know and you're just waiting for something you know terrible to happen it just from the beginning when she's doing the external reporting outside the uh, the plant you know you're just wondering is this going to be some kind of serious thing i i just i felt they did that very well they the whole, you know, that whole radiation meltdown thing, that's always been a big fear, you know, I mean, either nuclear war or, or you know, plant meltdowns or whatever, you know, we've been trained to, to be scared about this, you know. Yeah, I think you're right. It taps into those fears really well. It, it, it uh, and interestingly enough, you know, Jane Fonda, you know, being a very politically active person, you know, she got on to this and she actually was politically outspoken about you know, restricting, you know, development of, of you know, no, the no nukes movement, the no nukes movement. And, you know, and, and she had a point because as soon as people got licenses to do things, they just wanted to keep doing it. And there, there, there was, you know, obviously some people saying, oh, don't worry about that. And there are shortcuts here and there. And obviously it's not the kind of thing you do shortcuts on. So she became very politically involved in the no nukes and so did Michael Douglas. And um, so if, if there was an actual interesting connection between the characters and the actors and the real world and people being sort of you know um this is a real thing it's not just a, it's not just a story and that was the interesting thing about the film when it came out it's just a movie as you said based on something that no one really knew about and then a major news story happened what this film was exactly about it and everyone was was basically riveted because it is a terror and as you said 
20 years or so before, everyone had been tired of nuclear arms. And now <clears throat> people make the connection between, you know, the, the radiation and how it kills people and how, you know, we don't really know what we're, we're toying with. So it definitely develops and maintains those ideas. There's a couple of sequences in it. Um, there's a car chase we're involving a cameraman. They're supposed to get this file to this sporting committee that are assessing whether they should build another power plant. And they have this car chase scene, which it's not that tense because you know we, they're they have and he's pushed off the hill and he, the car rolls like 90 times and then somehow he survives. I don't know how he survives, but it, and they're obsessed about did he survive or not? Which in modern day films we're just like ah forget the guy. And it's so the and there's a car chase also involving Jack Lemmon, the same ominous kind of car chases him. And the car, there's a couple of good moments in it, but for it me, was it was the, the '70s car chase style. You know, yeah, that, it wasn't it was a little it, bit artificial. It doesn't. Yeah, it was very really, artificial. And the, you know what I I found interesting about the the camera crew guy who gets pushed off the road when he's trying to deliver the uh, evidence to the commission. He um, and then he rolls off and then there's, you know, the, the police and the fire guys are there with the jaws of life. And then we see this helicopter flying in. And I thought the helicopter was like the Metaflight hospital helicopter, right? But it lands and then like the nuclear um, plant executive guy gets out. He's like, what, you know, we'll handle this now or whatever, you know. And yeah. I'm thinking, why aren't they putting this guy on the, why aren't they putting him on the helicopter to get him to the hospital? But it was just, I thought it was just funny that, it, you know, the executive from the nuclear plant coming out of the helicopter instead of like medical you. people. That, that whole sequence didn't really ring true. And it was developing tension because he had to get this information to the commission. And if he did, then, you know, they would reveal the big bad businessman and then him not making the evil, you know, nuclear henchman pushing him off the side of the cliff. It kind of just extended the story. And we're like, really, it, it didn't, it didn't, it was just like, okay. And then, then, then they go back to how are we going to, you know, let the world know about this. And of course, then the most interesting part of the film really is when Jack Lemmon, he grabs a gun and he takes over, he takes control of the control room. And then he says, okay, I'm, I, I'm going to, no one can come in here until I t talk on live TV. The dangers of this plant, this plant should be shut down. Right. He was, and, he's going to be the whistleblower. Yeah. He's the whistleblower. And, and then it turns out that he has like a nervous breakdown, right? As the whistleblowing is happening and he just looks like a crazy lunatic. He does. Everyone's completely, completely ineffective. But the guy who saves him and, and kind of rebuilds his reputation uh, at that moment afterwards, you know, after they deal with that situation, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to burn the whole movie, but Wilford Brimley, I, man, he was good in this movie. I, that guy is never a bad character. I mean, he always, and it's basically, he's always playing that same guy, you know, but um, he was really good in this. And, and the way he kind of stood up for, for Jack Lemmon's character at the end, corporate guys want him to sell him out and everything. And he's, and he just finally, in the end, he goes, no, none of the things they're saying is true. He was a good man and da 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 da, da. And yeah. man, he was he was really good in this. I thought I was I, he should have been nominated. If he wasn't nominated, he should have been nominated. He wasn't, no. I no. thought he was really strong in this movie. And Jack Lemmon, just playing that role, he played that role so well. I mean, he was just so yeah. gutted at the end, you know, just trying to deal with all this and that and the conflict. Yeah. And, and you know, you could just see all the things just bouncing around in his head and you know, in such a serious role for a guy who said, you know, has such a strong comedic background. And, uh, but he played it so well, which explains, you know, I think he won the Oscar for this, right? No, he didn't win it. He was, he was nominated. Oh, he was nominated. But he, man, he could have won it because he was, he yep. was fantastic in this role. Yeah, he was. He was really good. Yeah. So I think the film, there's some really good moments in it. And it's certainly interesting uh, in terms of how it represents the times. Um, 
there's, you know, sections that are kind of like a little bit 70s, a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit dated, but uh, I really enjoyed watching it again. I hadn't seen it since like, you know, 80, early 80s. So yeah, I've never seen it. No, I, I, I enjoyed the movie. I actually thought it was good. I, you know, and I'll tell you something, the argument about, you know, the the name of the movie has always been, you know, debated, debatable. Cause I, you know, that was one of the reasons I didn't ever want to see this because it just sounded like a stupid China syndrome, you know, it just sounded like some movie I didn't want to see. And uh, I didn't know what China syndrome mean means, but it basically means that I guess if there was a complete meltdown, the core could conceivably sink through the entire earth, go through the core of the earth and come out in China. And that's why they, they call it the China syndrome. Like that, that yeah. could happen. Um, and, but there were some other names that they were con considering, but, uh, I guess Jane Fonda really fought to keep the name China syndrome. And yeah. it was, it was, and then in the end, I think it, it ended up being a good choice because this was one of about 20 new disaster movies that they end up making in the next five years or something. I mean, yeah. it ends up being a whole bunch. This was like a whole genre of, of genre of movies, you know, but I, I actually enjoyed the movie. I thought it was good. Um, you know, like I said, the characters were, were strong. The acting was great. The plot was good. You know, it was a little predictable, but uh, it's still, it really kind of painted a realistic picture of how these, you know, corporate guys would, would act in the situation. So, yeah. Well, there's a scene in it that's exactly like network where they're like, you know, are we, you know, it's the old corporate guys. And it's like, are we really going to do this? It's like, yeah, we're going to do it. And it's just like, you know, corporate America and, and so many films is always portrayed in the most negative possible way. It's, and, and it's funny, like in corporate America, you'd think at some point people would like say, we're tired of corporate America because all the movies show them as being terrible. And yet on we go, we, yeah. <laughs> it never changes. Yeah. And then they run for president. <laughs> yeah exactly our next film is a classic manhattan it's a film by woody allen it was directed by woody allen uh it was written by woody allen and marshall brickman who also wrote uh annie hall with uh woody allen and it was produced by uh charles joffe it was filmed in black and white the cinematographer one of the great cinematographers uh, gordon willis if you think of great movies of the 70s, chances are that that guy was the cinematographer. It was, you know, all the Godfathers, all many Woody Allen movies. I mean, the guy was just track record of success as a cinematographer. And he actually says that this is his favorite movie that he ever made, which makes sense because it's almost like a love story about the city of Manhattan. The whole movie is kind of, I, I feel it's like a, a real, it's shot as if the city is is part of the story and, and and to love the city and the way that it was shot with the black and white and the, and the way the music you know Woody Allen was inspired to make this movie by listening to uh, Gershwin he loved Gershwin and he was listening to uh, songs of Gershwin and, and it kind of was the catalyst to write this movie the soundtrack and the powerful scenery and imagery of Manhattan connected with um, the songs of Gershwin very much impacts the style of the movie and uh, you can really see that there's a you know that love affair of, of New York is very much promoted in the music and in the style that the film is shot and I think Gordon Willis does a phenomenal job as the cinematographer the the plot of the story is is a, you know it's a very Woody Allen movie uh, you've got Woody Allen and then his best friend and they're both you know intellectual successful men one is Woody Allen is a TV producer but he's you know he hates his job because it's like a Saturday Night Live kind of thing but he's very unsatisfied with it his his friend is a professor who's you know very successful has a wife they don't have kids Woody Allen's been divorced a couple of times he's now dating a 17 year old played by uh, Mariel Hemingway she, she actually might have been younger than 17 
when this film was, was shot. I mean, she's definitely a young teenager, uh, just a naive young teenager. It's just, it's, now it's almost uncomfortable to watch this part of the movie, knowing Woody Allen's background and his history. And uh, so he's dating this 17 year old and it's kind of, it's known all his, I mean, they go out to dinner and he brings the 17 year old. And, uh, oh, Diane Keaton is also in the movie. She plays the, uh, starts off as the mistress to Woody Allen. Yale is his name. Yeah, Yale, his, his best friend who's a professor ends up having an affair with Diane Keaton. Uh, but then, you know, he kind of backs away and Woody Allen starts to fall for her, even though he hates her at the beginning. And then he dumps the 17 year old and starts dating Diane Keaton. But then the Yale guy, uh, um, says, ah, just bring her in and we can still hang out and I'll just pretend like I didn't know her, you know? And so they're having these foursome things, but, uh, you know, dinners and dates and things like that. But then he falls for her again and then they start the relationship up again. And Woody Allen is completely devastated by his friend's betrayal. And there's, so there's that whole kind of plot happening all in the, the Manhattan and using the city and all its famous areas that are shot, that it's shot at, you know, lanes and, uh, the parks and um, the Museum of Modern Art and, uh, you know, the, the famous shot of the bridge and them sitting after talking all night, sitting as the sun is rising, uh, is it the Brooklyn Bridge? Is that, was that the Brooklyn Bridge shot? No, it's the Midtown. That's Midtown. one of the great, yeah. the great thing about the shot. Yeah. And, well, I think, yeah. And so there's, you know, there's a, it's a total homage to the city and the skylines and, and they do a great job with that. And the, you know, and the plots, like I said, you know, he's dealing with his own demons and trying to kind of figure things out. Meanwhile, his ex-wife writes this book. Oh, and his ex-wife is played by Meryl Streep. She's very good in the movie as well, even though she just has a small role. But uh, she's just vindictive and writes this horrible tell-all book about him. And it turns out he's just, you know, he was terrible to her and almost killed her, her lesbian lover although he denies that he, he almost killed her with a car. He's like, it was dark, it jolted. I didn't try to run her over, but you know, it's, it sounds like he did try to run her over. And so there's just a lot of comedic place uh, parts in the movie. And it's, and, you know, I, I really enjoyed it. I've seen it a number of times, but you know, it's still, it's just such a classic movie about New York. It just makes you really appreciate uh, having the experience of, of being involved in New York city. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Meryl Streep and as you say, it is a pretty small role, but her role is so funny and she plays, as you say, a really vindictive person. And of course the jokes are is that Woody Allen was such a terrible lover husband that, you know, he drove her to being a lesbian. That's one of the classic Woody Allen jokes in it. Oh, um, you know, just saying another, one of my, I wrote this down, one of my favorite lines. She said, you knew what you were getting into with me. And he goes, my, my analyst warned me about you, but you were so beautiful. I got a new analyst. <laughs> I love that line. I thought that line was such a good line. Yeah. <laughs> And she also, she talks a lot about uh, 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 her previous lover to Woody Allen, goes on about how virile and how- Well, that's Diane Keaton, not, not uh, Meryl Streep. Was that Diane Keaton? Yeah, yeah, Diane Keaton, because- uh, Yeah, and so Diane Keaton goes on about this lover she used to have, and, and, and you know, she paints him to be like basically George Clooney or something, just to, and then we see him in a store, and it's Wallace Shawn, I don't know if people know Wallace Shawn, but he's- you know, he's, he's a character actor. He's often a voice actor in many, uh, you know, uh, animated films. Um, but he's, you know, definitely doesn't look virile. He's, he's like played, a chubby Woody Allen, man. That's yeah, basically. and he played squat and he's bald. And and then when you see him, it's like one of the best scenes. I'm like, wait a minute, this is the guy? This is the guy? And uh, well, Sean just comes up and he's just like this really friendly kind of unassuming person oh and he's, he still has an intense feeling for her the way he's talking to her and yeah, yeah totally like that. and she's like god you look great you've lost weight like he had looked worse before yeah 
Yeah, that's pretty good. And Woody Allen's um, like, that's the guy? That's the guy? Yeah. Ooh, ooh, that's not what I thought, you know? And it no. was just, that was a great, you're right. That was a very funny scene, you know? Um, and you also met, so the iconic stuff, it's fast. That, that shot that everyone actually probably knows, even if they don't know the film, it's Diane Keaton and Woody Allen sitting, watching the sunrise. And it's the Midtown Bridge, which is so interesting because everyone thinks, obviously, it's got to be the Brooklyn Bridge because Brooklyn Bridge is so iconic. But it's the Midtown Bridge, and Midtown Bridge is, you know, is nothing in terms of design, either the same as the Manhattan Bridge is a more beautiful bridge. But the way, as you said, Gordon Willis shot it, and they have a park bench in the foreground and the bridge behind it, it's absolutely beautiful. And there's just this long, quiet shot of them sitting there talking, and it's just about, you know, small things. Absolutely beautiful. And then the opening montage of the film is, it's almost like you're let down the rest of the film because it's this absolutely spectacular montage of incredible shots of, of the city. And I did a little reading in Woody Allen's uh, biography that came out, he wrote uh, like 10 pages about Manhattan. And uh, a, a couple of those shots are from, he used to live on, on Central Park. He had an incredible apartment that, you know, penthouse looking up the park. And the night of the firework, uh, fireworks on July 4th, he wanted to shoot it, but you're not allowed to shoot anything in the building. And he actually, had you know his camera crew just smuggle things up in their coats and stuff, and they shot it illegally. And it's the, the fireworks scene is the shot from the balcony of his apartment because he had such an incredible point of view that no one had access to. And technically, he wasn't supposed to shoot it, but he shot it and said, "Well, get me." Yeah, later. and the and the way the music syncs to the shots with the oh, opening montages is yep. amazing, really good. I mean, he uses yep. the music perfectly, yep. and the editing. Susan Morse, who edited many of his films. Yep. did a great job so you know the shots were I, it was just phenomenal i mean it really yep. shows that he has a love for the city you know yeah and i mean like i understand that some people you know this whole thing about separating someone's private life with their professional i don't think it's you know I, you know as a film teacher i i've stayed away from woody allen for a number of years because there's just this thing and the kids just focus on you know this this you know obvious huge mistake that he made in life having relationship with his partner's you know daughter I mean it was a, obviously a big judgment error um, and then of course as you said we make the connection he's got this relationship with a 17 year old and and he's got another film of husbands and wives where he's and while he was the split up he was leaving his wife for a younger woman and so he's he's put this in his films and I, I always admire his willingness to put himself kind of out there although I'm you know I don't have much of a comment on his personal decisions but uh, his love of the city and his uh, he just his cities are I've you know I've he's made obviously many films since you know Barcelona and Paris and a number of Venice and for me I don't I mean I appreciate his, his work and everything but for me Woody Allen's films are New York um, he made another film a few years later called Hyann and Her Sisters and there's another beautiful sequence going through and it's Sam Watterson is an architect he's they just drive to the city and they just look at great landmarks and he's an architect he explains them but it's a real reach in the story but it's Woody Allen's opportunity just to show beautiful things in the city and he does it all the time and Annie Hall there's all this Coney Allen stuff and and so Woody Allen very sharp snappy dialogue great characters I mean they're always Woody Allen-esque but and beautiful shots of the city and that's what I I like about his film so much. One of the things that I thought was interesting is that, you know, they show Mariel Hemingway's character, uh, Tracy, coming out of Tracy. her school. And she, she went to Dalton. Yeah, she went uh, to Dalton. Dalton, which is the first thing I thought was at the time that this movie was shot, Jeffrey Epstein was a teacher at Dalton. The, uh, oh, yeah. you know, the, the predator, the sexual predator of Donald yeah. Trump's friend. 
and uh, and he was and, you know, nothing was there was no connection to him in any controversy at that, that time. That was the first thing that popped in my head is that I knew that he had been a teacher at the time that this movie was shot. He was a yeah. teacher in that school. Yeah. Um, and it's bizarre too, because when you watch the film, like he's out with to dinner at nice restaurants and everyone is like an artist or a critic or very connected, doing interesting things. And they sit there and say, Tracy, what do you do? It's like, I'm in high school. And it's yeah. like, I, I can't stay out late tonight because I have homework. And that, that it's just a joke. But then you're thinking, this is insane. Like if I were to go out, you know, I'm not, I'm a little bit older than he is this character, but not too much. And I'm going to go out and somebody's going out with somebody that's in high school. You'd be like, what? Well, <laughs> as teachers, that. as teachers, we would be freaked out. Yeah, it's just like, this is insane. And the characters are all, they all think it's kind of funny that she's in high school because they're thinking, well, Woody, why don't you just date someone your age? The idea that he's somehow corrupting her isn't part of the story at all. No, that's no. that just kind of blows me away. Still, when you, when you watch, it, it's like, oh my god, this is crazy. But the Moors of the '70s, this was um, no one had an issue with it. And of course, we look back at it now, and everyone, you know, obviously looks at the lens of Woody Allen, and you know, he had a relationship, as we know, with uh, you know his partner's daughter, who was I think 18 at the time, or ballpark, and so obviously that was a big mistake. And well, oh, even know, at the time that this this movie was you know this this was autobiographical because he there's suspicions that he was he had dated a 17 or 18 year old that had been in any hall and that this part of yeah. the movie was kind of about True. that and that she had gone to um the Stuyvesant you know and yeah. so there's you know yeah. very much that's autobiographical a lot of people suspect well in his autobiography he's pretty adamant that 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 wasn't true that it was exaggerated but you know, it's him. And he, he admitted just the, the Sun Ying thing and that's it. But he said this was nothing to do with his character, but everyone, of course, focuses on it. And I'm like, eh, whatever. I mean, he made his bed, so he's got a lie in it now. But uh, it's a shame because just watching the film for what it is and taking that stuff out is the best way to see the film. But it's obviously pretty difficult, you know, knowing everything that's happened. But, uh, yeah. And, it, and, you know, Mariel Hemingway released a book and talked a little bit about this experience. And she was 16 uh, when this was filmed and, and a virgin and, you know, didn't have a lot of experience with boys or anything like that. And so she was very uncomfortable with like the kissing scenes with Woody Allen. She, and, you know, and the, and the crew, you know, unconcerned with her feelings about stuff. And so, you know, it, it was very traumatic for her to like in the horse and carriage scene where he kind of just attacks her and kisses her and, and, yeah. and they cut and everybody's like, Oh, good job. And she goes over to the director and, and uh, or to the cinematographer Gordon uh, and Willis and says, please don't make me do that again. You know, and she didn't want to do another yeah. scene. You know? And I, I could see, you know, I mean, it's like very, it must have been a very disturbing experience for her. So the, there is all that stuff into it. But as you said, it's, it's a beautiful film and it's pretty hard to, you can't just separate it, but to focus on, as you said, Gordon Willis, Willis's images and some of the characters, some of the lines are just great. And Woody Allen has always had this, he's always doubted himself being a great filmmaker because most of his best, his best films are comic. And he always, you know, he's made a number of other films like Interiors, Another Woman and all these films. And they're just not as good because it's lacking that, what he's really good at is comic lines. Manhattan is really good because it's got lots of good scenes, you know, talking about Meryl Streep and all these great funny lines. But there's also really interesting, beautiful self-reflection and, and, you know, just, really, you know, contemplative um, drama in it, but it's balanced with the comedy. Um, so it's not just all this drama, which he tried, but he's just not as good at. 
And, you know, it's, it's interesting you talk about self-doubt because at the end, when he finished this movie, he begged the studio to not release it. He thought it was a horrible movie. He didn't think it would be good. He offered to, to uh, shoot another movie for free if they wouldn't yeah. release this movie. And, you know, even to the into this day, he says, I got away with it, even though it was yeah. hugely successful. It was more commercially successful for him than Annie Hall. And, you know, he claims that he never he's never seen his films. When it's when it's finished, I mean, he has made a film basically every year for fifty years now or something. And, yeah, uh, and I think and, he's making his fiftieth year film. Yeah. I think he's coming up in and Paris. It's insane now. He's doing everything in Europe because they won't let yeah, him make yeah. films here. Well, I mean, they appreciate him more. I think too. They love him in Europe. Yeah. yeah. So and it's cheaper. It's cheaper. So yeah. So yeah, he's still making films. I totally uh, admire him for that. But he he claims that he's never seen one of his films. Yeah, Once he's finished, know. it's yeah. gone, he moves on to something I, else. I mean, I could believe that. He's certainly, he's got some... He's issues. neurotic enough. He's, he does all his writing still on a typewriter, all these fascinating things. So Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it was a good movie. It holds up very well. And uh, I think we picked two good ones, uh, Manhattan and China Syndrome. Uh, well done. And our next episode, I believe, we'll be looking at uh, the Best Picture nominees, either Golden Globes or Oscars from 1981. Correct? 80. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, you're right. Made in 80, nominated in 81. Yes. Yep. All right. Well, thanks for uh, listening to Cinema Around the Corner. I'm Ben Wager and my co-host Don Gibson. We'll see you next time. See you later.